There is a quest that is as old as time itself. For as far back as we can look, humanity has been searching for the good life. Whether you're in the Middle East in 1000 BC, like the teacher in the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, who searched diligently to find out what was good, or whether you're sitting on your couch in Adelaide in 2020, I think it's pretty fair to say that the quest for the good life is universal. Now, ancient Israel had a word that captured the idea beautifully. You've possibly heard it, shalom. We generally translate it as peace, but it's not just the absence of conflict. It's a much richer concept that encompasses well-being and blessing and rest. In short, the good life. Many voices speak to us about this. The mainstream media, the social media online, celebrities, sages and gurus, self-help experts, preachers and prophets. We read about it in the scriptures and the weekend glossy magazines. They all speak of a similar destination, but they offer very different paths to get there. So where exactly is the good life to be found? And how do you get there? Well, this morning we're going to see the Bible's answer to that question in Philippians 4. And Abby's going to read for us. But before she does, let me pray for us. You are righteous, Lord, and your way is right. You are our refuge and shield, and we put our hope in your word. Give us understanding that we might live faithfully. Direct our footsteps according to your word and do not let any sin rule over us. Amen. Hello, my name is Abby and I will be doing our Bible reading for this morning. Our Bible reading comes from Philippians 4, 4 to 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Thanks, Abby. We've got five points to guide us this morning on our way. Rejoice in the Lord. Trust in the judge. Call on your father. Rest in his power and walk in his way. Now, our passage starts with Paul directing us to the ultimate source of joy, pointing us to where we might find the good life. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Now, joy is compelling. It's beautiful. It's transformative. 
It's elusive, but we know it when we see it, don't we? It's like happiness, but it's more than happiness. Someone who is joyous shines. Now, joy ultimately is the emotional experience of someone who is experiencing shalom. It comes when we know the blessing and the peace that we crave. We find it when our hearts are at rest. What is unique about Paul's approach to joy and the source for the good life is that it's not to be found primarily in experience, nor the accumulation of things, nor health or anything else like that, the paths that so many try and walk today. While these things can bring a fleeting joy, Paul takes us beyond the gift to the one who gives them. Paul anchors true and lasting joy. He anchors the good life in the Lord. As we saw a few weeks back, life's destination is not a place, it's a person. The goal of life is not to get to heaven, but to come face to face with Jesus Christ. And Paul says this experience is not just a future thing. We can rejoice in the Lord here and now. And our joy is not to be found merely in what God has done for us. We need to remember that what he has done is an expression of who he is. Now, I remember learning about this as a kid. At birthdays and Christmases, I'd get all caught up in the gifts that I'd been given. I wouldn't even want to read the card. I'd just dive in, rip open the paper to get my present. And I can remember my grandfather gently explaining to me that while rejoicing in the gift was entirely appropriate, it was the love of the one who gave it that was the greatest gift. The relationship that the gift expressed rather than just the thing that I got. Paul tells us that we are to find joy in the Lord, in him, as well as what he has done for us. Now, the Psalms give us a great model. Psalm 89 verse 16, we are to rejoice in his righteousness. We are to rejoice in his power and majesty. Psalm 68 verse 4, sing to the God, sing praises of his name. Extol him who rides on the cloud, rejoice before him. His name is the Lord. We're to rejoice in his holiness. Psalm 99 verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. We're to rejoice in his righteous word. Psalm 119 verse 14. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. We are to rejoice in his salvation. Psalm 13 verse 5. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. Paul tells us, rejoice in the Lord. That is where the good life is found. But most of us will know that this is harder than it sounds. Circumstance, people, conspire against us. And that brings us to our next point. Trust the judge. Now, 
I probably don't need to say it, but people can be challenging. We have a picture of how we want things to work out. We plan our lives, our path to joy, to the good life, and then that person gets in the way. They ring, they say something, they do something, their plans mess with yours, and peace and joy go out the window. The squabble between Euodia and Syntyche that Paul recounts further uh, back at the start of the chapter is not unique. Most of us have seen the challenge that the conflict can bring to peace and joy in churches, in families and in workplaces. So what does Paul advise? In verse 5 he writes, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Now this word gentleness, forbearance in the older translations, is not something that our society is very familiar with. Behind it is the idea of mercy and grace, of not insisting on your own rights. It's used in the Bible as a contrast to anger, to quarrelling, and on insisting that we get our own way. Now, it's not an attitude that we speak of very much in our culture. When we're told we need to be assertive, we need to fight for our rights. But we know that this just leads to greater conflict, greater division, and it is so destructive to peace. Now, Paul is telling us that the path to peace is not one that we have to fight for. In contrast, We are to be a people characterised by gentleness, forbearance, not insisting on our own way. Why? Because Paul tells us the Lord is near. So why does he say that? Well, he's reminding us that judgment is coming. And not a judgment like we would give, one that is flawed and imperfect, distorted by our limited knowledge, our skewed perspective and our sinful self-interest. He reminds us that judgment, God's judgment, is coming and that is where every wrong will be perfectly set right by the one who is completely just, totally knowing and infinitely powerful. Reminding us that God will set things straight. Paul tells us that we can walk the path to peace in gentleness and forbearance. He tells us God's got this. But you might object. Doesn't this just leave us at the bottom of the pile until Jesus comes back? Well, maybe. But we can always call on our Father. God doesn't leave us at the mercy of the world and tell us just to tough it out to the end. He's with us. The sovereign Lord, the great creator, is our heavenly father. And he listens to our prayers. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, we should note that Paul here uses two words for prayer. The first is general, but the second is much more intense. 
He calls us to plead, to beg, to beseech God for aid. It's not an image that's laid back, understated. It's kind of like Bartimaeus, the blind man who we meet in the Gospels. He sits beside the road when Jesus is passing by and he calls out, begging for mercy. The people try to shut him up and he continues to call out all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, Paul recognizes that there are very real threats that may provoke fear and anxiety. And he wisely directs us to turn to God, the one who can help and to plead for his existence. And if we're going to do this, we must believe that he is completely trustworthy, that God has got everything under control, that he is working his will out perfectly. Paul is saying to us, go to him in prayer, trust him, don't be anxious. Now, we have trouble with this because so often we want to tell him how things should work out. It's kind of like if you imagine you went in for surgery. Are we the best person to tell the surgeon how they should do the operation? Yes, we have a shared vision of the end, the restoration of health. But we are simply not qualified to determine the best path. It's the same with God. We like the end result he puts before us in Scripture, complete and perfected in Christ. But we must remember that God is the one who is best equipped to choose the path. Trust him. His intention is to bless us. Romans 8 reminds us that he's given us Christ. Why would he rip us off? Philippians 1 verse 6 promises that the one who began will finish his work in us. Paul tells us that the contrast to prayer is worry. Instead of handing it over, we take it upon ourselves. He encourages us not to do that. Now, anxiety is a natural reaction when the things that we love are threatened. The things from which we seek shalom are under threat. A man called Ed Welsh wrote a book called Running Scared. He writes this, he said, Anytime you love or want something deeply, you will notice fear and anxieties because you might not get them. Anytime you can't control the fate of these things you want or love, you will notice fear and anxieties because you might lose them. Paul tells us we can trust God with these things. Now, Paul is not speaking here about clinical anxiety. This is a medical condition caused by issues with brain chemistry. It falls into a different category and should be addressed medically and psychologically. But don't let a diagnosis lessen your personal responsibility. You can still pray and Paul's encouragement still stands. But when we come to him in prayer, Paul tells us that there is a flow on in terms of our experience in the present, that we can rest in God's strength. 
Anxiety is a massive threat to peace. You know the feeling. You're stressed, you're unable to rest, your mind is running through every angle, every permutation, every possibility. But God makes us a promise. Verse 7. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the flow on. Paul says, don't be anxious, pray, with the result that God's peace will guard our hearts and minds. So how does this happen? Is it just an automatic one, two, three? Well, yes and no. Prayer is the first step and the next step and the one after that too. You can rest in his strength if you trust that he's got this. There's a threat. You've asked God to work in you for blessing in light of it. And now, will you trust the one who created all things that he's able to deal with this hassle? Now, I know that it's often not that simple. You may need to come back to him. You may need to specifically ask him for his peace to request that he increase your faith so you can trust him, that he show himself to be trustworthy. You might need to pray the prayer from the Gospels. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Remember the intensity of the second prayer word that we translate petition, but it has more urgency than perhaps our word conveys. We come to the throne of grace. We beg the king for the grace we need in our hour of need. Now, Paul is not being naive. This is not some Pollyanna Christianity. It's all about puppies and flowers and rainbows and unicorns and that kind of stuff thrown in for good measure. Remember, Paul is writing this from prison, not from the comfy couch in his study with a latte in his hand. This man says, do not be anxious. Pray. Trust your heavenly father that he's got this. And the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ. And this brings us to our last point. The life of Shalom, the good life, is not a kick back and relax kind of life, but it's a press on, strive, keep going. It's not just the destination. It is the journey. It's not passive. Until Christ's return, we are called to press on, to take hold of that for which Christ has taken hold of us. We can rest in his sovereign grace, but that doesn't make us lazy. It empowers and energizes and motivates us. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has made the life of blessing, the good life that we crave, possible. And we are called to live in it. Verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. 
So if we're going to live this life, it's a life of faith, a life of rejoicing in a relationship with God. We need to trust him. How will we grow in that trust? How will we rejoice in the Lord? How will we grow in confidence that we can come to our Father in prayer and that he will hear us? Simply by living the life he's called us to live. We need to put it into practice. Like Paul, we need to have our eyes fixed on the one who waits for us at the end. I remember going to a primary school athletics carnival for one of my kids and seeing a friend's daughter run in a 100 metre race. Now he was waiting at the finish line and from the moment the gun went, her eyes were fixed on her dad waiting at the end. And the smile on her face was just so beautiful. She had a race to run, but she knew who was waiting for her at the end. Paul tells us, as we focus on Christ, that we also should be focusing on the true, the noble, the right, the pure, the lovely, the admirable, the excellent and praiseworthy, to fix our eyes on these things. Now, God is the ultimate example of this, but there is so much in his creation that points us to his wisdom, his excellence, and his power. There are elements of our culture that reflect and elevate what he loves, what he esteems. They could be books or movies or art, music and architecture. They elevate the vision of God's perfection for the world. They celebrate things that God rejoices in. Now, these things don't have to be distinctly Christian. I'm talking about the best things of human culture. It doesn't mean that you only listen to Christian music, that you only watch Christian shows on TV, that you only read the Bible. God showers his blessings upon the righteous and the unrighteous. Paul encourages us to focus on what is best. And I think it's safe to assume that we then use the best as a springboard to the greater appreciation of the God who embodies perfection so that we might rejoice in him. So it's worth asking, what do we fill our lives with? So much of our discretional time these days is spent in entertainment of a dubious nature. We crowd out what is best with the ordinary. We drown it in banality. How many cat videos do you really need to see? How much time do you need to be fixated on a Facebook feed? We also crowd out the best with bad. We play computer games that have the players do things that God's word clearly condemns. We watch movies and shows that celebrate ideals that go against the pattern of life that God calls us to live. We read books where God condemns what they elevate. You get the picture. You get it. There's a saying. You can only get out what you put in. It's totally true for our spiritual lives. Now in verse 9, 
Paul holds before us his example and teaching as something to emulate. We have it preserved in the pages of Scripture. And as he lives for Christ, he strives to be a model for others. And this should be our aim as well. Not to show off, but to be a blessing. And so as we conclude, we need to hear his promise. Paul tells us all, if we're seeking the life of shalom, the good life, the best life, we find that in God alone. We find it in our relationship with him. We rejoice in him. He says, don't worry about the things that get in the way. Don't be anxious about them. Go to God in prayer. Beg his aid. Fix your eyes on him and keep your focus on what is best. Strive, press on to take hold of that for which God took hold of us. And as we do this, the one in whom we are called to rejoice, the God of peace, will be with us. Amen.